With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm going to break news with you here, okay? I did something no American has ever done in history. I moved to Paris to write a novel when I graduated college. Had never been done. I can't believe you did that. Never been done. Nobody's ever. No. So I went to Paris. I started writing a novel. I had a friend who had a room, said, come, you can stay in my room and everything and, and, and write here. And I got two or three chapters into it and thought, uh-oh, what if, what if I fail? What if nobody likes my book? What if I can't get a good book written? What if I can't get it published? And it's that voice we all have in our heads at one time or another that just says, it's not worth the potential embarrassment. Cry, I cried uncle. It's just quit. Quit, walk away from this. And I did. And that, though, came back several years later on my honeymoon, many years later, probably like eight years later, when my wife said, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And the, it just popped out. I didn't even think. I said, writing a novel and getting it published because I never finished that first one. So I couldn't take it back once I told my wife, this is my dream. This is the thing I really want to do in life. Brad, don't give away all the material. I know, it's all the good stuff. Oh, I'm saving the real good stuff. Were you just recording? Were you just recording that? I recorded five seconds of it. All right, we'll start start. from scratch. I got Brad Thor, one of my favorite thriller writers, just came out with a new book called Backlash. This is, Brad, this is your 18th thriller book, thriller novel. 18th in the Scott Harvath series, 19th overall. I did a spinoff one about an all-female Delta Force team called The Athena Project. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought that was a short story in uh, Thriller by the the James Patterson. Uh, no, project. that was called the Athens Solution oh, okay. that I did. Not confused, but yeah, no. It's listen. I'm I'm glad that means I've been prolific. So yeah. I'm very happy you're confused with that. Well, you're very prolific. I mean, your first book was in 2002, Lines of Lucerne, a great book where you introduced the Scott Horvath character. Now this is the the 18th book in that series in 18 years. So you do yeah. a, a book a year. Uh, I'm sure this will be a best-selling book, but out of the 18, have all been New York Times bestsellers? Not all of them. I think it wasn't until my fourth or fifth book that I hit the extended list. Uh, in fact, when I did finally hit, it was a new hardcover was out in we had just a month before released a paperback from the year prior. So I hit at the same time and hardcover and paperback, but the, you know, not the top 10 stuff you saw on the paper. It was like 17, 18 that you had to go on the internet to find and that kind of a thing, but still great, great achievement. Uh, absolutely. And before we get into, I want to get into the nitty gritty of, uh, how to write a thriller, how you write a thriller. Also your, your background, but I'm just curious, like that moment where you first, got recognized on a list. Was that like a big moment yeah. for you? Yeah, it so was pretty cool. Call, call you and say, hey, Brad, guess what? Yep, yep. And uh, it was kind of the one shoe and then the second shoe job. You 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 made it for your paperback. And I was like, okay, great. You know, you, I had a new hardcover out. I was hoping that would be the one that would hit the list. But you made it for your paperback and then there was a beat and then my editor said, and you got it for your brand new hardcover. So it was, she, she strung me out a little bit, but it was great. Great feeling. Probably the best feeling, though, was having written that first book, The Lions of Lucerne. 
because I'd always wanted to be a writer since I was a little boy. And uh, as we were talking about before we began the podcast, my wife on our honeymoon asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. So she said, when the honeymoon's over and we're home, you need to start taking two hours a day, protected time, make that happen. And she brought me sandwiches and they kept the world at bay so I could work for two hours a day. I, I love that. So did you wake up two hours early or like, what did you, how did you find those? What did you carve out to get those two hours? So Mary Higgins Clark would wake up two hours before her family. And I would heard, always had heard this story about how she'd get up and she'd go to the dining room table or the kitchen table and she'd work for two hours. Uh, I normally... I don't do well early in the morning. There's not enough caffeine to get me going. I, I start to really pick up on my creative juices are later. So I was doing it in the evenings. And okay. that's when it So, happened. But like, what did that sacrifice for you to like television or yeah, walks I mean, or- We're talking- The gym. Yeah. It, it, luckily, I got up and got the gym stuff in the morning. So it was kind of television. It was coming out of my personal time. So I was, I had a TV show on public television at the time called Traveling Light. That's what you, you were you the host of the show? I was or? the host, the producer, the writer. In fact, I used to make up names for the credit crawl. Uh, so I'd seem like a bigger business. So I put in characters from The Simpsons, friends of mine from high school. What, what, what was that show about? So- I thought that traveling and seeing the world made me a better, not only a Amer better American, but a better human being. Seeing how different people did different things, how cultures were different. You know, you go to Spain and nobody'd go to dinner till 10 o'clock at night. And uh, it, so it was a, it was my desire to encourage younger people not to wait till they were retired to see the world. So the show was geared towards 18 to 34-year-olds. They used to air me back-to-back -back with Rick Steves, Travels in Europe, who's still on public television. But our our show for 18 to 34-year-olds really took off, and we were getting fan mail from people in their 70s and their 80s. They liked the energy of the show and the things that we captured. So I'd you get to see the museums and stuff, but then I'd show you offbeat sites and all that kind of thing. This is on PBS? Yep, nationwide. And... I'm just curious, PBS, was that getting better, bigger ratings than the major networks? Because PBS probably is covered by more stations than any other network. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, the show probably could have fit at MTV at the time. It was very avant-garde and we weren't using a tripod. It was the handheld camera and a lot of movement and stuff. Uh, but that's a great question. I never stopped to think back to why did I end up doing this at public television uh, but I liked the programming there. I thought it was a potentially good fit. And I probably read an article that they were looking for more programming for, for younger viewers to, because public television is kind of an older and what'd audience. You do, what'd you do? You just like took some videos and, and pitched them out of the blue or like, did you have an in? It's no, we all want to make a TV show. We want to hear how you did it. It's, it was hard. I ended up, um, talking to people, there's two ways into public television. At least there, there was when I was doing it, you could either go through PBS or there was another group that distributed programming to public television stations out of uh, Boston called American Program Service, APS. And PBS, I couldn't crack the nut at PBS proper, the big HQ. And I went to American Program Service and they're like, this is a really cool idea. What you're going to need is you need to partner with a station or a station group because there's so many rules in public television. So they demand that you work with a group that'll make sure that you abide by all the rules and don't do anything that public television doesn't want. So they said, there's this group called South Carolina Educational Television. They are all the public television stations for the, for the state of South Carolina. They're looking for new programming. Pitch them. 
I pitched them. They loved it. And they said, okay, now go find the money. That's the other thing with public television is they can say, great show, but you have to go find the money too. So found some, actually didn't find money. I Public television in South Carolina gave me a crew. They said, if you will pay for your own pilot, we'll give you a crew to help defray costs. So I took a crew to Paris, shot a pilot, and then at the big broadcaster's annual convention where all the directors for each station were there, they showed a clip of my show, and then I had to hound each station across the country to say, okay, based on the clip you saw, based on the pilot, do you want the full pilot, or would you commit now to, to airing it if I do a season? And so once stations like the station in Boston, Chicago, Miami, LA, San Francisco started saying, yes, we like it, and if the whole season is this quality, we will take it, then I could go to potential advertisers and say, here's the deal. Because I got to sell the commercials. They're called underwriting spots. This commercial, oh, I see. It's like so sponsored this brought by. to you by, yeah, yeah, they're sponsored by. And you could actually put a little 15, when I was doing it, 15 seconds was the max. And that was hard uh, because no group that was doing television had a 15 second spot. They had 30s. And their ad agencies were saying, oh, it's not worth it. Don't. So there were, there were a lot of challenges, but I got some great sponsors. I got Rail Europe Group out of, uh, out of White Plains, the people that do the rail passes. It was a natural fit, and Rail Europe came on board. The Let's Go Guidebook series, which is done at Harvard, uh, came on board, and then a student travel agency called Council Travel. And so raised the money, went out, and I did two seasons. And then did you stop just to write thriller writer, thriller novels? It was, I gotta tell you, it was really hard because not only was I the producer, writer, and host of this television series, I was the owner of the, the business, the production company. And when you're an entrepreneur, you have to spend 50% is the minimum amount of your time you need to spend getting new business and getting money to come in. So I wasn't spending, I was spending 30% doing TV, 70% trying to get money, but I'd always wanted to write a book. And in fact, when I had graduated from the University of Southern California, I'm going to break news with you here, okay? I did something no American has ever done in history. I moved to Paris to write a novel when I graduated college. Had never been done. I can't believe you did that. Never been done. Nobody's ever. No. I'll just tell you by coincidence, uh, this morning I was reading A Movable Feast by Hemingway, which is the 1926 version of that. <laughs> I was just at his house in Key West two weeks ago. I saw it for the first time. We were on vacation. Uh, did you course, see his little typewriter? His typewriter's there? I, I did, and I, they said that he wrote 500 to 700 words a day, and I thought, what a piker. Only five to seven? I do 2,500 in a day. And if I'm really pressed, you know, I can get into the 3,000 range. Well, he didn't write 18 books. <laughs> no, and his books are like that thick too. Uh, so his are not the same length that I do. But so I went to Paris. I started writing a novel. I had a friend who had a room, said, come, you can stay in my room and everything and, and, and write here. And I got two or three chapters into it and thought, uh-oh, what if, what if I fail? What if nobody likes my book? What if I can't get a good book written? What if I can't get it published? And it's that voice we all have in our heads at one time or another that just says, it's not worth the potential embarrassment. Cry, I cried uncle. It's just quit. Quit, walk away from this. And I did. And that, though, came back several years later on my honeymoon, many years later, probably like eight years later, when my wife said, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And the, it just popped out. I didn't even think. I said, writing a novel and getting it published because I never finished that first one. But but let me ask, like, this wasn't like a surprise in the sense that, yes, you had already done a, an attempt. You you went to Paris and, and started, which, by the way, I, I, would, I, would ma- I would wager most novelists who even publish one novel, that's their second, third, fourth attempt at writing a novel. Very few people, I think, sit down, write a novel, get it published, and life is good after that. But also at USC, 
You studied uh, fiction under one of my all-time favorite writers, T.C. Boyle. Tom, yeah, he's fabulous. I mean, he's still writing great novels, but I'll tell you, his short story, Greasy Lake, is like one of the best short stories of all time. He's he's an incredible guy. I remember, I think Tortilla Curtain, his book, came out when I was at USC. A, a, a fabulous teacher, really, really neat guy, retired now from teaching, uh, had like the first house that Frank Lloyd Wright built west of the Mississippi. Uh, that's his house. Neat guy, neat guy, and fun guy to study under. Uh, so I couldn't take it back once I told my wife, this is my dream. This is the thing I really want to do in life. And what's funny is, so I commit to doing that. I said, okay, fine. We get home, I start spending two hours uh, doing this. We were traveling on our honeymoon through Europe on rail passes from Rail Europe Group, the sponsor of my public television uh, travel show. And we were doing overnight train rides to save money so we didn't have to spend it on hotels. And we had a shared compartment on our very last overnight train leg, which was from uh, Munich uh, and Oktoberfest to Amsterdam. And we ended up sharing it with a lovely brother and sister from Georgia. And we talked books all night. The sister loved books. I love books. We talked, talk, 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 talk. And she said, and they knew my TV show. They were fans of the TV show. And we pulled into Amsterdam the next morning. We got very little sleep because we were up all night talking. And she said, well, what are you going to do next? Are you going to go home and make more TV shows? And I said, actually, I've decided I'm going to write a novel. And when we go, oh, that's really cool. And we got off the train and we went to exchange information. And she handed me her business card. And she was a sales rep for Simon & Schuster. And she said, if I, if you write that novel, I want to read it. And if I can help you at Simon & Schuster, I will. And it is now 19 books later, and I've been with Simon & Schuster the whole time. And when you finished the first book, Lions of Lucerne, uh, were, did you send it to her and she kind of hooked you up? Or did you have to go go through the agent, she, editor process? She read it, made some suggestions on editing it, and... While she was uh, making suggestions on editing, because she was a sales rep who really wanted to be an editor. She had a very good eye. And uh, I started querying agents. I bought a book called The Writer's Digest Guide to Literary Agents. It's like a phone book. So yeah. it'll tell you what agents in what genres are actively looking for new authors. And I got rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. But I got one um, who said, okay, I like what I've seen. And if you make these changes, I'll read it again. And so I was in the process of trying well, to- What changes they, I've read the, your first book, obviously, Lions of Lucerne. What, what, do you remember what changes they wanted you to make? Uh, excellent book, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, but- I, By I, the way, and, and, and I just want to just say, your most recent book, Backlash, you don't need to have- re, I, I just want to oh, say, thank you, yeah. it's very important to know, you don't need to have, re, have read any of your prior books to totally 100% get this, even though your last book, Spymaster, has kind of a cliffhanger at the end, which leads to this- it it's it you don't need to have read that to to hundred percent get this. Thank you don't you. Have, need to have read Lions of Lucerne, but I love Lions of Lucerne. It was a very creative beginning. How you kind of set up the the thrill and and the ride that we we take with you after that. So I'm I'm just curious what they wanted you to. What were the changes? Well, it's it's funny. I tell people that the books are like the James Bond movies in that they're working on 25 right now. You can go see the 25th James Bond movie having never seen any of the other ones. You can jump right in and you know who Bond is and you have a great adventure with them. So I, the books I always meant to be standalones, even though it's a repeat character. So you never want somebody to walk into a bookstore and say, oh, you don't have book number one, then I can't buy this other right. book by the same author. So um, I don't remember, to be honest with you, I could sit here and make up what my agent Heidi uh, wanted me to change. I don't remember because from <laughs> within days of her saying, I want you to make these changes, 
Cindy had gotten the manuscript, Cindy the sales agent, to one of the top editors at Simon & Schuster. And that editor called me and said, do you have an agent? And I said, can I call you back in five minutes? And I called Heidi and got through her secretary, got to her, her assistant, and said, I got a call from Emily Besser. It's Simon & Schuster. And uh, she wants to buy the manuscript. And my agent said, well, I guess you don't need to make those changes I asked for that. Can I tell you that this is very important for people to know. If you want an agent, there's all sorts of ways to get an agent. There's all sorts of ways to get a book published. But the best way to get an agent is to do all the work for them. Right. <laughs> and then you get the agent. Like if you get the publisher to yeah. say, I want to buy this book. And they just step in. Then and the, the deals. agent is not going to say no. Yeah. It's like free money for them. And then of course they they put in their work uh, on, on future oh. books and so on. Ab- absolutely. And I have a stellar agent. The one piece of advice I'd give writers who are looking for agents is there's this dirty little secret in the publishing world where uh, agents have tried to set the rules for writers saying, if you're a new writer, and you're looking for an agent, you should only query one agent at a time. And a query is where you send a letter in saying, this is who I am, this is the book I've written. Some agents want you to attach a chapter or three chapters. Some don't want any chapters. They want to read the letter and decide, and they'll respond to you. And they, the agents have always said, only query one agent at a time. And I thought, wait a second, there's only 10 commandments, and I never saw query one agent at a time on either of the two tablets. It was on the third tablet. The, the one that got drawn. In history He's of the world, 15. part one. Yeah. I was just making that Mel Brooks joke today. It's a great joke joke. Um, But I tell people, find the five to 10 agents that you think would be the best representatives for your work and shotgun them. And if they're a good agent, they're going to snap you up. But why wait for one agent? If one agent, it takes them six months to respond to you and you have to go through 10 before you ever get an agent. That's 60 months. That's five years out of your life that you're not going to get back. So don't listen to their rules. That's self-serving advice on their part. But but why did, okay, I have so many different directions I want to go. And I do want to I, the the overall theme I want to get to is how to write a thriller novel, okay. Brad Thor style, and I kind of I'm just curious the way I break it down is if the, is the, is if that's the way you think about it. But I want to ask a couple other questions. One is um, you're also and and this came up in my interview with Brad Meltzer. You're also involved in this what's called the the Red Cell, where a bunch the government gathers a bunch of thriller writers at, at, at to kind of come up with uh, scary terrorist or warfare scenarios that the U.S. might not be thinking of. Is that like how many authors are involved in that? Well, so they broke us off into groups. They don't need me and Brad Meltzer. I mean, Brad could have been in the next room and I wouldn't have known it. And by the way, I love Brad Meltzer. He is not only a fabulous author, he's just a terrific guy, as you know. He is the most loving, the sweetest, funniest, nicest guy. Honestly, one just he's so charming. So after you've read all of my books, I encourage you to give Brad Meltzer's uh, books a try. Uh, And I say that as a joke, because Brad's got such a good sense of humor. So the analytic red cell program was in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the Department of Homeland Security was put together by the Bush administration. And before the 9-11 commission was assembled and their report was written, Washington, the powers that be in Washington agreed that the 9-11 attacks had happened because of a failure of imagination on the part of the federal government. They were, uh, to use an example, they were fighting the next problem by looking in the rearview mirror, thinking everything was going to look like it had in the past. They were not thinking outside the box. So they said, why don't we bring in creative thinkers from outside DC, put them in with all, you know, FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, all the alphabets in the soup, 
and war game scenarios. So they had people like me, Brad Meltzer, but they also had people like Michael Bay, the director uh, from the Transformers movies. Um, and they brought us all in and they would sit us down with people and they would, it, it was interesting because either they would ask for scenarios and targets that we thought nobody was looking for. And they would also give us, which a lot of us suspected were like open cases that they couldn't figure out where they'd give us clues and say, how do you think these connect? So it's a guy that was killed in a cafe in uh, Ibiza, and there was a car that was found in Ukraine with a strand of the guy's hair, a single hair in the back seat, and there were tickets to uh, a Donna Summer concert that had his fingerprint on it that were found in Miami. Weird stuff, and you'd be wondering how it all fit together, and you'd say, well, if I was writing a book or doing a movie, this is how I'd link it up. Um, so I call it the Las Vegas of government programs because what happens in the red cell program stays in the red cell program. We're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, they only ever publicized one scenario that they were looking at. And that was how terrorists might hit as a hurricane was coming on shore. And it was very interesting because if you think about it, they take all of the emergency rescue vehicles, they move them a safe distance away, and they marshal them in one spot. So if you could blow up all the ambulances and fire trucks and police cars and all that kind of stuff, they wouldn't be able to come in after the hurricane to rescue people. And there's also the shelters that they put people in. They were worried, would terrorists hit those? Because you've got all these people congregating in there. It's easy to move around. Nobody might notice you because they're so focused on the hurricane and blah, blah, blah. That's the only one they ever publicized Why as an example. Why did they publicize that one? Because so many people, it is a lot easier to control the narrative and to not let conspiracy theories sprout and everything if you're actually transparent. And they said, this is one that we're willing to share. Now, maybe they thought it was too far-fetched that the bad guys would never do it or that they had it locked down enough or maybe crazy enough. And I don't know because I didn't work at the Department of Homeland Security. I was only part of this program. Maybe they actually were worried that this was going to happen, and they figured that if they released it, it would dissuade the bad guys. It would be a way of tipping their hand. I don't know. That's yeah. Now you're asking me as a thriller writer, I'll give you a thousand different reasons. I, yeah, I'm curious, as a thriller writer, if you even – like here's here's what I believe why they released it. Just here, And I, have, I know nothing, and I'm just hearing you say this for the first time. Uh, it just doesn't sound that – terror filled <laughs> it's I, like like you there, there are those people are already victims in a hurricane right and the and most of america has accepted that they're victims so it doesn't feel like hitting the world trade center with a plane that filled the entire world really mm -hmm. with terror it was like such an unusual thing that scenario sounds like the least terror-filled well, thing. They weren't selling books and they weren't selling movie tickets. What they were doing was trying to allay the fears of Americans because after 9-11, we were worried about everything. Right. Churches, movie theaters, synagogues, all this kind of stuff. So the idea that they were looking at something, it, it, it could be, you know, sometimes you have to justify a program to keep it going, keep the funding going. Sometimes you need members of Congress to say, okay, my constituents think this is a really good idea, so we're going to go ahead and renew the budget, whatever. But it was... It was a way that they could put out there to say this is this is a, an idea we're thinking of where Americans could be at risk. Like if you had everybody gathered at a YMCA or or a local school gymnasium and you put 500 people in there, granted we, it was 3,000 on 9-11, but 500 is a lot of people potentially to lose. So I, I don't know. I just know it's the only one that they ever – publicized. But I agree, it's not as big and dramatic. Um, it, but that was how good they were. They wanted the small stuff and they wanted the big stuff because they really didn't know. And they were willing to say, we don't know. 
What's going to happen do they next? Still, do they still call you for this? You still or? get calls. Yeah, you still get calls. I got, I've got, i gotten calls from Department of Homeland Security, and even they passed my name along to the Department of Defense, to the Pentagon. They're like, yeah, this guy Thor, eh, the ideas aren't half bad. You should use him. So, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it sounds kind of cool. You know what it is? Because when I first got the call, it's like something out of a thriller movie. Yeah, like you feel like you're part of... Yeah, what, my dad's a my dad's a no longer active U.S. Marine. Uh, he went to school in the GI Bill, and so this I was being asked to serve my country with what's between my ears. They didn't ask me to pick up a rifle and go fight. They yeah. asked me to use my my brain to help keep people safe. So it's cool. I was jogging in the mountains of Utah. I was living in Park City in an area where cell phones never work, and mine rang, and I got yeah. this phone call. Will yeah. you come to D.C.? So it was, it was kind of cool. So so back in the beginning, you haven't yet written your first thriller novel, a lot of people, when they say to themselves, oh, I'm going to write the great American novel, they don't pick thriller as a category. They kind of make their first attempt some sort of literary type of novel or a coming-of-age type of novel. Mm-hmm. Why did you pick thriller as a category? So it's interesting. I did not know why until I read Stephen King's excellent book uh, on writing. Mm-hmm. And great in, book. A fabulous book. And in it, Stephen King says that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I agree. I grew up reading Clancy and Freddie Forsyth and Le Carre. I love that stuff. And I would take Stephen King's uh, line and I would extend it. Not only should you write what you love to read because that's where your passion is, you also, you may not know this, you have a mini PhD in that genre. Mm-hmm. You know why you like certain authors in that genre and why you don't like others or why is, uh, an author who you love wrote five books but the sixth book was a clunker and he didn't like it. And then that author, the seventh book, they came back and they really recaptured the magic. You know a lot about that genre. So it's the perfect place. I've only heard, and I will not say his name because I promised I wouldn't. I've only heard of one person ever who said, I'm going to write in that genre because that's where the money is. I've only heard about that once. Everybody else, it's because they loved reading the books in the genre, whether it's chiclet, whether it's the thriller stuff I do, whether it's historical fiction, people grew up reading that stuff and loved it. So, so- I love your books and and I feel like each, I, this is not just pandering to the guest here. I wanna kinda uh, ask you about a bunch of different qualities of your writing and, and I see them particularly in this book, Backlash, your latest book, but I've seen them in, in all your books. Uh, and then ask you just, I wanna, I wanna learn from your point of view how to write a thriller novel based on kind of the structure of Backlash. I, I have never, in all my interviews, nobody's ever asked me this. So this is, my my fans are going to love this and hopefully wannabe writers are going to love this. So ask away. So this is great. I'm going I'm to start from the top down structurally and then get into some of the nitty gritty. Sure. So it seems like, you know, and I noticed this from Lions of Lucerne all the way through Backlash, there's kind of the, the typical three acts, right? So s- something bad happens to the good guys and... Uh, our main, your main character is named Scott Horvath, who's a Harvath, a, yes, Harvath, yep. who's a, a SEAL Team Six type of guy, mm-hmm. and he's sort of like Alex Cross and James Patterson's books. He's like that figure where he's not quite a superhero, but just like the best America America's sure. training can do. And he's also sometimes his ethical standards don't quite go in exact parallel with where America's agenda he is. Makes so omelets, he makes omelets and he's got to break some eggs, yeah. But but still, he he's always trying to do the right thing. Yes. And, he, and he's he's on the side of the, the good guys. So bad things happen to the country, let's say in the form of the president or type top officials or terrorism or whatever. Uh, something bad happens to Scott mm-hmm. and that's the end of, 
And by the way, we probably, at, by this point, at, by the end of Act 1, we actually know who the enemies are in, in many cases. Right. And in Act 2, which, is, by the way, is not always the case in, 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 in Up for Other Thriller Writers, in Act 2, Scott has problem after problem, and they get bigger and bigger, and using his kind of technical knowledge uh, and, and so on, and, and maybe help of new peers and colleagues, he's able to somewhat at least work through them to get to the point where we get to act three, which is of course problems start to get solved in sometimes unexpected ways. And sometimes there's an act four, which as you've put it in prior interviews could be like a cliffhanger to the next book. Right. So you're, I, I wish I could say I sat down and mapped it out this clinically where I, I look at act one, act two and a potential act four. I, I have a few rules when I write. And number one is there has to be action on page one. Start I, I, with action. I've noticed that. Like, right, there's no fooling around in your books. Like, mm -hmm. I, if I open this backlash to page one, or if you open Lines of Lucerne or The Last Patriot or yeah, any you of your books. Yeah, you can read that, yeah. Like, you have, uh, you know, it's-, it's Earmuffs. <laughs> it's a great. <laughs> gonna, there's this, a bad word. This is not. This is not a spoiler. It's on page one. But basically, a plane explodes on page one of yeah. Backlash. Yeah. And but there's still some mystery. You don't know who their hidden guest is. Who's on right, page right. two? There's some guy and, that was boarded with a hood over his head. Right. We could guess who it is, but you know, we don't, we don't know. Well, and this is so. Here's the challenge because you you mentioned the cliffhanger at the end of last summer's book, Spymaster. I knew that when last summer's book, the hardcover, became a paperback this spring, people were going to be looking for the payoff for that cliffhanger. I knew in the paperback there would be three chapters. In the paperback of Spymaster, there would be three chapters of Backlash, the new book. I had to write those three chapters in such a way that they would not pay off the cliffhanger because I didn't want somebody to read the paperback, get to the cliffhanger, look at the three chapters from the next book and figure out what happened. So that was a challenge for me. I set myself the cliffhanger. Uh, I didn't know that because I only saw the hardcover of, I only read the hardcover for Spymaster. So the paperback always has the three chapters of the next book in it. And so that was, that was a challenge. But back to the act structure. So action starts on page one. That's the big thing for me. And if you, if you read my books, the way I've done them has actually changed because I think the way people consume entertainment has changed. So I used to have four or five storylines. So if you go back to Lines of Lucerne, there's there's several through lines in there, and I've now dramatically shortened that. Yeah, and I chapter I think length too has gotten much shorter. With, with Lions of Lucerne, you set up the premise that there's evil guys planning mm -hmm. something evil. It opens but, with an evil meeting. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's an evil Couple meeting. senators, yeah. But, but it's not clear what they're going to do. It's not clear, are they evil towards America or towards some other group? It's right. not. And and it's a few, Lions of Lucerne is a it's great book, but um, I don't want to say slower start because the evil happens on page but one. But it's different, but, yeah. But, but the, the catastrophic evil doesn't happen for a few more chapters. Right. And, and even then it's off to the side a little bit at first. Yeah, so the other challenge that goes hand in glove with that is that I want my book plots to be evergreen. So I want you to be able to pick up Lines of Lucerne and have a great read or backlash. As we talked about with the James Bond movies, it doesn't matter where you jump in. Each each Bond movie stands alone. You don't need to know anything about Bond. You're going to pick it up right but, away. But, but like, and this starts to get to, into the nitty gritty. Like when you're starting that first chapter of, of and, I, and I have comments about how you structure all your chapters, but when you're starting that first chapter of the book, are you, do you have like this kind of repertoire of like, okay, am I going to make 
a, a plane explode? Am I going to get the president kidnapped? Am I going to have some terrorist thing happen? So you like, have to have the German of, of an idea. You have to know kind of what this is. So to give you an idea, and this is this is such a great peel back the curtain and let people see behind it. I love this. So I got to the end last year of writing Spymaster, and I turned it in. My editor loved it. She didn't like the ending. There was no cliffhanger originally. Oh, okay. There was none. Because the last line. Is- yeah, yeah, it's it's huge. So there was no, and I was really frustrated because it just was, there were some loose ends to tie up and Harvath said, you know, and he, I left, it is still there in the book where Harvath says, well, we'll let these two kind of more junior people on the team, well, let's give them an unlimited budget, but let's tell them they've got six weeks to go mop up all these loose ends. And that was going to be it. And you'd wonder, okay, is is Thor bringing up these younger characters to play a bigger role because he's setting them loose now and we'll see what happens in the next book. And my editor was just like, uh, I'm not feeling it. Not that that bothers me, but it's not enough of an ending. Go back to the drawing board, bring me something else. And so I went back to the drawing board, I uncorked it, I poured it over ice, I had my bourbon um, and, uh, and was thinking and thinking and thinking. And I had this idea, just I, Jack London said, you can't wait for inspiration to strike, you have to go after it with a club. Uh, and I believe that's true. And I also believe that when the muse speaks to you, you have to listen to her. And if you don't, she's gonna stop talking to you and you don't want that. I mean, I almost wanna ask you about that, that last, line but let me let me figure out a way to ask it without any spoilers uh nothing is sacred no character is sacred that comes from my current consumption of entertainment so i like it's i read books i love to i'm still a huge voracious reader of books i also watch tv I love when no character is safe and you don't know what's going to happen. And so, very, and particularly in today's day, very Game of Thrones-like, you know, as we saw in this last season. I'll, I'll tell you, I was working on pitching a TV show in Hollywood with uh, the Rothenbergers who did Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen. Um, and we had a television show that I, I, we were pitching with Alcon Entertainment. And uh, I remember one of the pitch points that we had was that no character is safe. And so I was talking to, to Creighton and Catherine, the, the Rothenbergers, saying, okay, well, let's talk about this. And so they went through shows that they liked where no character was safe. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That really is exciting. It keeps people on the edge of their seats. Now, with a franchise like I have, where I bring back the same main character, you couldn't kill your main character. I mean, you could threaten to whatever. You, you don't want to do that. Uh, you also have to be careful what characters you kill because – I work for the readers. They are my bosses. So when they leave reviews on Amazon, that's my performance review for the year. I want five stars. I, I do not want unhappy readers. But I've been watching things like Ray Donovan on Showtime, where I love it that sometimes things don't go well for him. Often they don't go well right. for him. And so I like being surprised. I like when a character I like gets rubbed out. I, there's a lot of stuff. And I thought, okay, the way we consume information is changing. The way we entertain ourselves is changing. And I wanted to not be stuck in, two decades on into my career into a writing pattern. I wanted to be able to evolve with entertainment. I want to give people short, crisp, cinematic chapters that they can burn through, and they but they can't stop. And when I switched over years and years and years ago and started really going faster with more action, sharper chapters and everything, one of the things I noticed uh, picked up a lot. I would get, starting from my very first book, 
letters from people that said, I gave your book to my dad, or I gave your book to my aunt or my niece, my son, my cousin. They weren't readers. They hadn't picked up a book in years. Now they're burning through all your books. They love reading your books. And that's music to an author's ears. So and this gets into the nitty gritty of how you structure a chapter as opposed to the book itself. Like your chapters are basically one to three pages, two pages average. Mm-hmm. So, and, and now they weren't always that way. Right, if you no, go no, back no, to the first book, was, they was, were much longer chapters. But I think, I think like you say, in today's attention glutted economy, people, every eight seconds, people need a reason to continue yeah. reading. And so if, if your chapters are too, so here's the structure I think of your chapter, you could disagree with me, of course, because they're your chapters, <laughs> but basically we, we have a problem. Scott may or may not, or the character involved may or may not solve it. But no matter what, at the end of that chapter, which is just a page, two pages later, there's a cliffhanger right. for the next page. Like, you know, I, I'll make, I'll just make up a chapter ending. You know, Scott breathed a sigh of relief as he, his car raced away from the explosion. Um, but then suddenly there was he, ticking he, he from heard, under the seat. Yeah, yeah. And, and everything went to black. Right. Uh, Every chapter I do that. Yeah. Mick, Mickey Spillane said that the first chapter sells the book, last chapter sells the next book. But I really believe that each chapter should sell the next chapter. And so one of the things that I love when I come in and do an interview, uh, particularly for TV, I get this a lot, TV and radio, uh, where they don't necessarily have a lot of time to prepare and they know I'm coming on the next morning. So they start the book the night before. And I love it when they say, well, the reason I got no sleep last night is because of our next guest, Brad Thor. You know, they figured they'd read a couple chapters, get a feel for the book and I get them hooked. So it's like potato, it's, I don't know, that's selling it short to compare it to potato chips, but you want people to work their way through the bag or through the tube of Pringles. I don't want people to close the cover. And so that's why the chapters are structured the way they are. And like I said, crisp and cinematic and fun and action. Uh, I want people to have the experience reading the books that I have writing them. Well, and I think think this idea of short chapters, uh, cliffhanger at the end of each chapter is an important writing technique for a thriller and for any book really, but like particularly for a thriller. And then I think you're not only selling each chapter, selling the next chapter. I feel to some extent you're thinking about each paragraph selling the next paragraph. Every word, every sentence, it's my job. So I'm an entertainer. That is my job first and foremost. Uh, We could talk about comedy and how a set works, right? And if you're telling joke after joke after joke that sucks, the audience is going to turn on you, right? They're going to get angry. So I don't want you to have it. Elmore Leonard said when he was asked for advice for young writers, he said, leave leave out the parts people skip. (laughs) Don't start with the weather. It was a dark and stormy night. And leave out the parts that people skip. So I don't want to let your heart, I, I have, there have to be some kind of, there are peaks and valleys, but I don't want your heart rate to to get back to normal. I'm going to keep you elevated cover to cover. Well, and I, I think- I'll let you breathe, but that's it. I think the weather thing is an important point because I think I think writers often are descriptive for no point. So for instance, Ugh. when you describe a scene that's very cold, you're not just, it's not just because this is where you are or where the character is. It's because that cold is going to be deathly cold in a yes. chat within a chapter yeah. like someone's going to potentially die of 
freezing and it's within a chapter. Yeah, it's important that you know how cold it is, how it actually feels and tastes and smells to have it be that cold. But you don't need, this was one thing. I loved Clancy and my dad used to love Clancy too. It's why I started reading him because I take my dad's books. But my dad would say, I don't need 50 pages on how the guidance system on a missile works. My dad used to joke that Clancy must have been paid by the word by his publisher because there was so much exposition about how that stuff worked. But you need some of that. And I feel like you've, yeah. like you've read, I don't know if you had prior experience with 50 types types of guns or if you built it up I while have, researching yeah. thrillers. But definitely in terms of, you know, which gun he's using, how it loads, reloads, I feel like that is important for your exposition because it establishes his expertise. It establishes the credibility of the people he's fighting, depending on what gun the they're using. The details are the bedrock of a thriller, and those are the tools that they use. But if so, to the to the missile thing, and I like Clancy's writing a lot. That was my dad's only knock about Clancy's that he thought Clancy went into two. He said it was like an instruction manual sometimes. But Clancy was known for that. I mean, the Russians couldn't believe how much he knew about the submarines, and even our own government thought that Clancy had a source inside, and that was. Fascinating, but for me, I don't think the reader, at least of my thrillers, has got time and they'll sit through that for that long. What's important is, and what I think is more interesting, is not how the missile works, but that you've got two special forces operatives that are hidden in the woods on the edge of this village and that they paint the house that the missile's supposed to hit with a laser. So they have a laser that you can't see, and that laser goes on the house and the missile follows that laser and the missile will hit where the laser is lighting it up right there. That to me is fascinating. I don't need to know about gyroscopes and thrust and all this kind of stuff. That's the cool part. Right. And so I, I wonder like where there's a balance. Like, so for instance, one time, uh, you know, let's say a character is getting a, a, a serum that paralyzes them. You'll name the, the chemicals. Yeah. Being ketamine used in that or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes they're very technical and, I think you you have to occasionally, and you do throw those in in order to, again to establish either your credibility as a writer of these topics, so it feels as real as possible, or the credibility of the doctor, or the credibility of Scott Horv Harveth, right. or whatever. So it's a it, it, there, there's a balance because you're you're using it to to signal your credibility, but at the same time you don't want to overdo it, like like maybe a Tom Clancy. And that's that's the delicate balancing act, right? So you have so to that's research the, it all still. You still have to research it. You still. So I'm lucky. My wife is my first reader. And she's a very, very good reader. And she, I call her Zorro because she goes through with a red pen and slashes stuff out that she doesn't think should be there or is repetitive or is not necessary. So I just by nature overthink things and I fret over every word. Is this the right word? Would this character feel this way? Am I showing enough of how this character thinks and feels? Um, and then my wife will go through and she'll catch stuff and she'll say, you know what? You actually need more, you need to bring more out here or this is too much or you said this two chapters ago. I'm not stupid. She does that as a joke, but you said it two chapters ago. I still remember it. You don't need to bring that back. But for me, I wrote two chapters ago a week ago, and I'd forgotten that I had said it two weeks ago and that it needs to, or two chapters ago, needs to come back in. So I'm lucky in that a lot of very smart people read the manuscript before it ends up at the bookstore and I get good feedback, whether they be from my editor, my wife and other readers, or even down to the people who help me with the research, active and retired uh, people from the CIA or from the special operations community. It, it is a, there's yeah, a yeah, large- like You'll have ex-CIA like CIA or, or special operations seals people and, yeah. read each book? Yeah, yeah. So, not, not not to vet it, but to make sure I'm getting it right, because I believe that is my duty to the readers. Uh, 
so we're talking a lot about Stephen King today. Uh, we, we talked about his book on writing. I joke. I'm sure it's tough for Stephen to write his books, right? He has a hard time. He's, he's very prolific, but it's not easy. It's not easy for any of us who are authors. But he has an advantage, I think, that I don't have, which is he's making up his world in uh, completely. Demons, monsters, all this kind of stuff. I am in a great box. I'm very happy, but I'm in this box where I have to abide by the rules of real life on how the CIA works, how SEALs work, how they're trained, what they do in the field, uh, what gets kicked into gear if a terrorist attack happens. I have to abide by real life rules that King doesn't. So that takes a lot of extra research. And, and I think, again, I think providing enough details helps you, uh, but just enough helps you establish your credibility. Like you're, the reader is safe in your hands. This right. is how the CIA responds. This is how seals respond to this is trust the White me House now protocol. let's have fun right yeah because uh, maybe you're making it up and maybe you're not but it no, seems no, no, it all... seems like you're, everything's very real when you when when protocols kick in and you know cia sends opera operatives across other countries you know lot borders and and all sorts of stuff and ambassadors have to talk and yeah, I call it, I didn't coin this phrase, but I, I call it faction. And you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. And a, a neat piece of fan mail I get is people say, I love to read your novels with my laptop open because I come across stuff and I say, there's no, Thor made this up. And then they search it and they're like, whoa, that really exists. So again, my number one job is to give you a white knuckle thrill ride. I'm an entertainer. If you close the book smarter, then that's the icing on the cake. So, so, so then another, I think... A important thing you do and this is this is particular to thrillers as opposed to just about any other genre maybe horror but um it's at at various points uh your main character scott is his life is at the mercy of the enemy right. and the enemy might be the weather the enemy might be a vicious animal the enemy might be um succeedingly higher levels of evil characters mm -hmm. you know there's kind of like the evil character who's a soldier, but then there's the evil character who's the soldier's boss. Then there might be the evil character who's really the ringleader behind everything. But bit by bit, Scott is like Scott is more and more at the his his life is at the whim or the mercy of these evil characters. And either he's got to figure it out or something's got to happen. Uh, and I think that's how and 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 heightening the evil per per each time of this is is part of the technique. Yeah, it dials up the tension, right? So you, so I never know, I don't outline. And my joke is I got to see one outline once in my life. Dan Brown showed me the outline for Da Vinci Code. And I tell this story at book signings and I make up this whole thing about how we had to pull this statue's head forward and there was a button underneath it and a bookcase at Dan's house opened and we went down this stone stairwell that was lit by torches and then he removed a medallion on a chain around his neck and put it into the wall and turned it and the wall slid back and there on this uh, this marble pedestal was the, uh, was the outline for Da Vinci Code. And I got to see the outline. I got to see what didn't make it into the Da Vinci Code. And Dan's a, Dan, at least uh, for Da Vinci Code, had outlined the whole thing. Uh, we have the same agent, and that's how I know Dan. And uh, my agent said, well, have you thought about outlining? And I tried it, and I, I hated it. I hated it because it, it took away the magic for me, knowing what was going to happen next. And Robert Frost said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. Well, well it's interesting because I'm curious about that because with an outline and let's take Dan Brown's books versus your books. And I'm curious, there, there's an important difference 
which is that sometimes his enemy is a total twist, surprise. Yes, yeah. And you have to know that starting out yeah, and yeah. how the puzzles are going to pay off and right. so on and so forth. It's a different book. That. It's a completely different book. Yeah. Right. And, and I feel like you have succeeded in not needing that. Like I said, or like we both said earlier, your enemies, I might even know in chapter one or two or three who the enemy is for the entire book. There's right. no, no twist. No twist on but, that But one. you don't yeah. really need it because if you're having a cliffhanger every two pages, it's not like I'm going to say, oh, there's no twist. Forget it. It's how does the main character... So my thing is, how does the main character get out of this? And how do we... you know, Back to Ray Donovan. How does it keep getting tougher and tougher and tougher for him so that you reading this are going, there's no... I come home some nights and my wife... I joke that my wife looks at my face and she knows if it's going to be a red wine night or a martini night because I come home and she's like, you painted yourself into a corner, didn't you? And I'd say, yeah, she can tell. And I and she always says, don't worry, you'll figure it out tomorrow. Because I don't cheat. There is no deus ex machina. I don't have somebody all of a sudden show up that you didn't expect or wouldn't be there. It has to be authentic. And that's what I think has made me successful is always being honest with my bosses, the readers, and always being uh, authentic with how the books unfold. And, so, and I keep the surprises in there. I keep the twists in, right, in the, the turns that you don't see coming. That's, I think, that's I think each too. problem is a surprise as they come up. But again, just that kind of like global, oh, it was really the president all along. Who would have thought? Like that doesn't, you it don't would, feel the need for that. Like the Scooby-Doo where they pull the mask up. It was right. actually old man Turner. Right, right. I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't and, for your damn kids. And the other thing I'm curious about is your evil characters are evil all the way through. It's not like Darth Vader kind of, he becomes good yeah. at the end. Uh, you, you, so you look at Indiana Jones. It's funny because I I spend a good amount of my year in between writing books, reading books on writing, because I believe that an author should strive to get better and better and better. Every year I try to raise the bar. So I'll read books about characterization and all this kind of stuff. Um, but there's one thing I know. I don't want Indiana Jones to be personally any different at the end of the adventure than he was at the beginning. I don't care if he loves puppies more or this guy. I don't want to know that. I don't want him to change. I want to know that every single time I sign up for an Indiana Jones adventure, I'm going to get the adventure. I'm going to get the guy I know. He's tough. He's smart. He is a good... I call Harvath my main character. He's the ultimate Boy Scout. I mean, this is somebody who believes in his country, believes that he has to go out and do what he does so other people who can't defend themselves are safe. And that's a big thing for me. There can be no American dream without the brave men and women who sign up willing to protect it. So it's funny to see how my books, people who don't read my books, like I'll even have people at the publishing house that are like, okay, well, we're going to do this marketing thing for Thor. So let's put guys in uniform and uh, let's get some army guys and some army helicopters. That's not what I do. Harvath may have a, a special operations background, but he's he's the covert guy. He's going in and playing close. He's using his, his experience as a Navy SEAL to help the United States tackle some of its most difficult, most dangerous business, particularly in situations where we don't want anybody to know the U.S. had anything to do with it. So he's supposed to slip in, do the dangerous work, and slip back out. Um, and I think because he's a man away, there isn't always the cavalry coming over the hill. This book was so hard to write the the jacket copy for because I didn't want to give it away. I didn't want to give away what it was. And one of the early reviews said, now that I've read the book, that jacket copy was fantastic because well, you couldn't give it away. Yeah, even in uh, this interview, I've been avoiding giving anything away because- And it's okay. There's the a, I can give you a 30,000- 
foot view on it if you want. Yeah. I mean, I can give. So sure, give it. Give for the for the listeners. The what I have done is so my guy is tasked with some of this nation's most dangerous business, as we've said. This guy has foiled plot after plot after plot for the Russians. He has whacked so many of their terrible uh, bad actors. He has put bags over the hoods of uh, hoods over the heads of their bad, really crooked, evil diplomats. Everything Russia's wanted to do, this one guy has stood in the way of it on behalf of the United States government. So the Russians decide, we're going to come snatch this guy. We're going to risk an act of war. We are going to grab this son of a bitch on American soil, which you do not do, but they figure he's never going to see it coming. They're going to get him at home. They're going to take him to Russia. He he knows so much stuff, they're going to wring it out of him. And then the Russian president himself has reserved the uh, the pleasure of putting a bullet in this guy's head. So that's the background. But on page one, he gets his one break. And this is the way they teach these guys. You may not get it, but if it comes, there's going to be one chance for you to escape and you have to take it. That's what they teach them in SEER school, the military and the, SB, uh, and the intel people. SEER is an acronym that stands for Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. And he gets this on that page where we talked about the plane going down. They're moving him within Russia to a black site where they're going to continue the interrogation. Plane goes down, middle of winter, terrible, terrible remote region. He's got nothing. He doesn't even have a coat. And he has to survive. This is his one chance to get away. And I got goosebumps even thinking about the book because I've never done this. I've never had him taken hostage, captive before. And I haven't put him in a, in a remote region with a survival situation. And I also found fascinating what happens in the United States when somebody like this goes missing? What is the machinery? And there's actually a program that President Obama set up that President Trump has continued and has added to. And in fact, the uh, the book is dedicated to the man who's in charge of that program right now. His name is Robert O'Brien. So I learned all this stuff that goes, and I'm not revealing anything that would tip ISIS or the Russians or the North Koreans. I don't do that in the books. But I was fascinated by the machinery of government that gets awakened when an American gets grabbed overseas. And that's the facts in the fiction. And I had so much fun, not only how does somebody survive in this situation, but how does America move heaven and earth to get this person back? Because you've got a 48-hour window before he's broken and all this stuff. This was a lot of fun to research and write. Well, one 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 final question, which is, so now you've been doing this from 2002 to now. Um, so much has changed in media with, with the internet. So much has changed in movies, television, books. Do you think people are reading these thrillers just as much? Or do you think there's there's other forms of media uh, like younger people are consuming more? Or how, how have you noticed consumption of media changed since you've started this? Well, it's it, it is interesting. So when people are reading less books, they're reading more of mine, which is very interesting. So we've seen our sales grow while kind of book sales in general have condensed. And I've, I've actually said to somebody working with me, I said, gosh, I wonder if there's a business school case study that looks at a contracting market and do people, do, do new businesses starting, so new authors, have a harder time attracting an audience into people as the market contracts, it, particularly when there's a lot of competition for their time and attention, do they have a brand author that they say, you know what, I know I'm going to get a good ride with him and I'm going to keep coming back every year. Uh, it's hard because I just kind of have my own business to focus on. But I do know that because I treat the reader with such respect, because I let the reader know they are number one for me, that I've built a really nice loyalty. And the best thing for authors is word of mouth. It's better than any advertising campaign. If if your wife, your daughter, your neighbor, your coworker says, you got to read this Brad Thor book I just read. It's fantastic. 
that moves more books and that does more for introducing readers to an author than anything else. So it doesn't have to be me. If you have an author that you love, the best thing you can do is tell other people about that author. That is the biggest thing that helps them. Well, other than you, what what three thriller writers do you recommend? Oh, so Brad Meltzer. Uh, I love Steve Barry. I love James Rollins. I mean, that's off the top of my head, but there's there's tons of them, tons of them out there. All right, well, Brad Thor, I, I, I feel like I could keep talking to you about all this stuff, but I know, uh, your time is precious. You're, you're, you, you're, you got a busy day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope you come back again next year when you have the next book. I would love to. And, uh, we'll continue the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's fun. It's good. are true overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprites ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last